Hi, and welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian, and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Phil Markgraf to uh, talk to us about um, mobbing as a keystone of third-generation extreme programming. Uh, uh, what do we do when mobbing is not an option? And uh, mobbing enabling safety-critical and high-reliability software. Um, but uh, first off, Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us an introduction, and then we can get into our conversation. Thank you, Chris. Austin, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I have been writing software for uh, altogether too long and I've uh, been in the industry for about 35 years. Um, from very early on, I've been working in embedded systems, uh, usually in high reliability systems, sometimes in safety critical medical devices. Uh, a fair amount of that time has been uh, doing leadership roles uh, where I only get the program maybe a third of the time. Uh, I had the good fortune to get introduced to extreme programming uh, very early on and have used that to deliver medical devices and giant jukeboxes and all sorts of different devices. And then, um, again, have moved into uh, um, using mob programming as a technique, uh, again, to deliver high-quality products and create really happy teams. And I'm very excited uh, to see it pull, move forward and, uh, and to talk with the two of you about uh about how we apply it sometimes nice nice well cool well, maybe we can jump right into that first topic i like this one because uh, i feel like uh I've, I've heard i've uh had this feeling before as well is this like the third generation of xp yes yeah, so what are your thoughts here <laughs> well uh this it came out of a conversation that i i had with a fairly well-known name in in the XP Agile world, and I was talking with some enthusiasm about mob programming, and had them back and say, mob programming is just three or more people. And to me, I thought, no, mob programming is mixing all of these practices that evolved, starting out with, with XP, and they work together in concert. Like Having more than one person isn't, doesn't get you the magic, right? You get the value out of mixing test-driven development, and rapid techniques to make sure that you've got quick feedback cycles. And really the way that I thought Extreme Programming did a great job of putting together sort of 12 practices that each one uh, lifted the other one up. And so when I, when I said mob programming, I meant this whole ensemble of things, how um, I saw your team doing it at Hunter and how I was trying to bring it into the teams that I was working with. And, uh, and as I say, other people had a much more limited view of it. And so my thought was, but when, what do we call this thing that has all these practices working together to create a great environment uh, for making software together? Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think we in our environment use lean and agile systems thinking, extreme programming, uh, all the way up to um you know all kinds of uh even different forms of negotiation habits and 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 other things like that right so so a lot of things are are focused on you know habits that we've found to be virtuous in nature i guess um and so uh yeah maybe may i think a lot of those things are implied when somebody says mob programming but but somebody new to mob programming that would be ambiguous and maybe you know perhaps even not uh not extremely visible so 
Um, yeah, like, uh, are there any other uh, practices or 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 habitual things that you feel like fall in there that come to mind? I, I don't how how I was thinking of it is just watching, you know, sort of starting out with with extreme programming, sort of as written the first time. Uh, there have been very things that have come in, just, just like that. I mean, uh, sometime early on, our team switched uh, from fixed-linked fixed iterations uh, into Kanban. Uh, somewhere along the line, uh, we had domain-driven design supplanting the, the metaphor concept, right? Uh, Dan North and his group uh, talked about TDD in a different way, and that came out as behavior-driven development, which I think is just a great way to think about how do you create your tests. And then subsequently, people are now talking about that in terms of executable specification, which is, I think, a really powerful idea in environments where requirements are important, like high reliability and safety critical and such. Um, and so I see all these things uh, moving the practices forward. And if you get like uh, the whole team concept in inside of XP, uh, it's being improved upon by radical candor, psychological safety, right? We had uh, simple design. I think if you go and you look at uh, Rich Hickey's talk, uh, Simple Made Easy, talks about how we quantify simplicity. And I think that's a really you know, powerful, how did all these things add on and grow? And so I, I don't know if there's necessarily one set, but I think there's the how did the state of the art move forward? And so I, I talked about this as third generation XP because I, I kind of see a couple different important points, real inflection points, and these lots of small steps along the way. Um, I mean, certainly the original uh, Kent Beck book is, you know, what I would say first generation. And I think the industry uh, really took to that, and it was, you know, really the seed that the Agile revolution grew out of. Um, and I think the next sort of big inflection point that I see is, um, is the continuous delivery book from Jess Humble, Dave Farley, to me, that expanded the scope of what we were doing XP on. Uh, but it was really just XP. And, and if you'd ask Kent and stuff, I'd be said, yeah, I, I intended all along. But I think how they articulated it grew everybody's view about what's our responsibility and where do we deliver value and how do we use fast feedback methods? Um, how do we move that fast feedback farther into the delivery process? And so I see that as really the second generation point of extreme programming. And then what got discovered at Hunter and, and has been, you know, proselytized with mob programming, when you mix that in as not just mob programs 3 plus, but as this complete set of practices, I see that as really the third major inflection point in this journey that, uh, you know, Kenton company uh, laid the seeds for back in whatever, 99, 98. Um, and so that's why I, I use the term XP third generation. I'm not sure that's the best name, but it, it kind of talks about the history and how do we got get here, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, helps me think about it. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, but what are the other pieces do you see on this journey? Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, one more time. What was that last question? <laughs> oh, I, I was saying, you know, I, I I talked about my vision of how this journey's gone. You talked about some of the practices that you see. What what other places? What other like important points do you see on this journey that's been from sort of XP to, to mobbing today? Uh, yeah, I, I think you, uh, I think you summarized it, summarized it well. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, generally speaking, 
you know, making things safer, more reliable, uh, value delivered more frequently, um, an acknowledgement that, uh, that we're in a constant state of experimentation, um, you know, I think is also an important piece, uh, and, and going from there, um, you know, aut automating repetitive behaviors, I think, you know, even, even that, uh, it is, is quite, um, important along there. I don't know, Austin, you have any more to add? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you guys have, have done a great list and the list goes on and on. And I think that's part of the challenge with this, with this question, right? Like, um, and I've seen the community go back and forth on this too, right? Like, uh, uh, there's two definitions from uh, conversations with Woody that I'm aware of where, so one is like the original one you see on Woody's original talks, which is like all the brilliant minds working on the same time, same space, same thing, same space, same computer. And that feels very much orchestrated, kind of like what you said earlier, uh, Phil, with like more than two people <laughs> working together. Like it's like the, almost like the slim definition. And then Woody also is another one that's let's work together well and turn up the good on flow efficiency, right? And I think there's a lot of things in life that I feel like have this problem that it's so rich and so good that it's hard to describe simply, <laughs> right? And any simple description uh -huh. will fail. Um, and so it's like, where do you start? And and in the answer is, I, I kind of don't know um, because I know with certain audiences, if you're like, well, Mobbing doesn't go well unless you have this, 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 and as you know, the list can get really, really long. And then it, it can also get kind of prescriptive too, because maybe some environments don't need the 11th and 13th thing on the list and they only need the fifth thing and not the first thing. Um, and so I don't know, my raw reaction to kind of this question, what do we call it, is I almost feel like um, the reason why I would, I'm so passionate about mobbing itself is that the practice of the more than two people is the foundation for all those other things, <laughs> all those other things to spread and do well, right? Because without that, it's kind of happening in a corner and there's good things you can do with that. But as once there's more than two people and you have a mob and they're trying certain things, maybe they pick one thing from the list that you talked about and they're working on that and they're helping that spread in the organization. Um, it's just such a wonderful foundation for all the other things that the the kind of concrete practice of multiple people working well together, um, even if they're not doing TDD yet, or even if they're not doing BDD yet, or even if they're not doing CD yet, is a good foundation for all those other things. But if I just talk about that simple practice, it feels too slim. It's like, that's not covering it all. Uh, so th there's some random ramblings for you, but the- yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that, that kind of ties me uh, maybe to some earlier thoughts that I had about this, which is like, um, so I, I believe like the virtuous loop, right. is something that you need. So this idea of dedicated learning time and, uh, a regular experimentation cycle, um, usually, uh, led by a retrospective. So it's, you're doing retrospectives and you're doing learning. And then, and then when you add mobbing into that, I think it just creates, it creates protection for the experimentation. And it also creates this like uh, a support system. So you feel more comfortable trying something because you have people there with you and you, uh, are less likely to get derailed by somebody saying, Hey, what are you doing? Um, and so, yeah, so, so I, I, like, I feel like if you have the virtuous loop and 
and then you you introduce mobbing, then then it's like adoption of individual practices as you go forward slowly grows the thing. Um, so that's a little bit of how I look at it, uh, because often, um, you know, when people have told me that they've tried mobbing and it's failed for them, the first question I ask is, do you have retrospectives with action items that you act on? And then the second thing I ask is, do you have dedicated learning time so that you can incorporate new ideas into that experimentation? Um, because usually I think those are like some of the prerequisites that that aren't met that that lead things, you know, let things go off the rails um, pretty badly. But yeah, but then maybe you adopt all of, you know, a whole bunch of practices along the way, um, given that experimentation. <laughs> <laughs> So Phil, you got yeah, some experience I, I, out there in the real world. I guess my follow-up question is, how do you usually present it to a team? Do you start with the list of 20 things? Do you start with one thing? Like, how does that usually work for you? <laughs> so uh, I usually start with test-driven development. And to nice. me, for me, that's very much a cornerstone because mm -hmm. it gives you this great focus on fast feedback. It's all about giving you a way to say, did my experiment succeed or not? It's not the only way, right? There's certain points where you don't know enough about something where you can't even think of a test. But I, for most cases, I think. And so for teams that I've come into where I was trying to address a dysfunction of the team, right? I, that's coming in with a team and they're floundering, not able to deliver. What do we do? Um, I'll, I actually start with um, sort of code katas in a, in a learning environment. And don't say change your regular day job. You go focus on what you're doing there, but we're going to take an hour out of three days a week and we're going to learn this new thing about test room development. And oh, by the way, we're going to do it as a team. And we're going to do this weird thing called mobbing, but it's just for training. And you know, we'll just try this and, and go off. And use that as a way to have them start building up those skills. And the teams that I've done this with, I've had one team that did really well where they... Um, we did this for about three months. And then I said, okay, we're starting this next project. And the only thing that I require is that you have automated tests for it. And anything else, you know, you figure out process, you don't have to do everything. And um, it's a hardware project. Uh, we're adding new features to an old product. And we were able to find a toehold where we could get um, like serial ports to talk into the display buffer. It was a LCD sort of display. And you could read what all the elements of the LCD was. And you could, we had somebody set up relays controlled by another hardware board, and we could simulate this whole controller board, do all of the things that a user would interact with, and test it as a hardware and loop test. So I'd figure that out and said, here's your toehold, go build your automation on that. The team realized no one person could do this work on their own. And so they said, why don't we do this mobbing thing? And they worked together, and they were able to then solve and make this testable system. And they basically kept doing it afterwards, and that's what it worked. And so I think it's the getting them a, a small safe space to work in to start learning it. And then I, I think you've had a, a similar experience. When something became a challenge, um, they fell back to leaning on each other and then discovered they liked it. And, and off we went. Um, I've also had the fortune of building a team from zero in this time. And at that point, we did all the interviewing as a mob. And from day one, you got hired knowing you were going to be in a mob. But, you know, the first two people came in and their mob was, hey, you get to mob with Phil. <laughs> and, 
And so we were three people because we hired two people in kind of close succession. And then slowly we grew that group in about 10 people. Uh, but each person that came in, you know, interview with two or three people, did TDD, did the whole cycle, retrospected in the, in the interview. Um, and so that was a really great way to kind of build it too. But you, you rarely have that, uh, that sort of build from scratch opportunity. Nice, nice. Nice. Right on. Right on. Good stuff. Well, I, I definitely want to hear more about the uh, safety critical and high reliability systems, but I had one thought, a hypothesis to throw out there, um, inspired by two things uh, from uh, actually a few things. Phil generating this conversation. Two is Woody's definitions of mobbing, like the really slim definitions. And then uh, Chris's thing that he's taught me over the years as Communication is experimentation. So I used to be like, my first communication with someone would be like paragraphs, you know, whether verbally or text or whatever. And it was more like, well, try one small thing and then iterate on that and see how it goes first, right? Um, so one hypothesis is how to describe the kind of mobbing movement is maybe to use Chris, one of Woody's slim definitions, um, and then see how it goes from there. But maybe use one of the slim definitions, but hint at the richness that there's more, you know what I mean? But not go into the 20 different things right away. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that hypothesis? <laughs> I think it's reasonable. I think the, uh, yeah. So so for me, like I said, I, I think it's um, the act of mobbing, right? The more than three three or more people programming together uh i i think that that adds a layer right so it's all you know so so if you, if you did Woody's definition of like all the you know all the right people uh you know working together on the same computer at the same time um and and you expanded that with some some level of experimentation uh and implied learning right Le learning organization stuff double loop learning type stuff and then then I think eventually you naturally uh, get to extreme programming. When we first started mobbing, the, the team was learning about TDD, but wasn't doing TDD in their code. And the first code that we mobbed on was not test driven. Um, and but no one on the team knew TDD either at that time, uh, except in like katas and things. Um, and so uh yeah i think you can get to it from different places right but like you know i think fundamentally for me it's, it's the the core of a um of both experimenting toward better and then ingesting new information to supersede or to uh surpass your current maximum right? mm. <laughs> i wonder where that where that uh like that sense of challenge for the team. How, how do we do an experiment? And then how do we hold ourselves accountable to improving from it? Um, you know, is that, you know, do you need that person somewhere in your team mm -hmm. uh, to sort of, you know, maybe they're player coach, maybe they're, you know, just, I don't know what, what role they are, but it's a, uh, I think you need somebody who's, who's going to ask that question every once in a while. Well, yeah, and it's funny because uh, I just heard uh, somebody on, on one of our teams say like, oh, we realize that 
you know, we weren't doing the action items on our retros for a while now. And so like, I think people can fall into that habit easily. Right. So, so I think no matter what it needs a champion um, and, you know, cause even if you're mobbing, but you're not, you're not performing your action items, you're not experimenting toward better um, Kaizen activities are not happening, I guess. Um, uh, then, then you end up in a state of, uh, you, you know, kind of coasting or whatever. And, and that I think is dangerous because you, you you're basically not going to get to a point where you realize something's wrong until much, much later. Um, and so, yeah, I agree. You, you have to have somebody passionate about acting on, on action items. Uh, and then that's just some level of like concrete experimentation coming out the other side. I, I think that's like the, the biggest pitfall is that anybody can be in really is, is um, that the stepping, you know, or inching toward better is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think so over, are... go ahead, go ahead, Phil. Yeah. Um, one of the things that has been interesting to me watching the whole agile thing happen is, I mean, it, it's been spread where we, you know, a lot of stuff happened in software and then is going infecting other parts of organizations. Um, and and if we are honest with ourselves, frankly, we can't. It all came out of manufacturing, anyways, right? Was inspired by manufacturing processes. Um, and one of the things that, like I've done in the past, is had uh, mobbing training for mechanical, electrical engineers, electrochemists, right? The researchers on um, a team that was making, you know, embedded hardware, right? So we had the whole engineering organization make that learning. And the different levels, different groups did better with it. They, I think the electrical engineers of the team really took to it, did a ton of work as group, you know, four of them together, uh, brainstorming on a problem, figuring out the challenges, reviewing each other's work, doing the retrospectives, doing more learning and such. And I think, I guess, if you looked at this as not the TDD first, TDD is, you know, really very software-y in its, in its nature. Maybe it's not, but I, I, how I, at least I executed it, it very much is. And yeah. if you were doing uh, most of these ideas about process experimentation, of focusing on flow, um, apply to maybe any of the engineering disciplines, and uh, and can spread wider. And so if we describe them that way, then they become much more applicable. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm with you that if. Uh... I often find myself saying mob TDD as like, make sure these two things go together. Right. But if you're not doing code, yeah, then the TDD part is dropped. Right. And uh, yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Um, and I think, I think you're right. Um, I think Chris and I have seen that sometimes mobs don't have like a, a super awesome player coach making great mobbing happen. And sometimes those people emerge. But it does stack the deck in your favor if you have someone like that on the mob, <laughs> I think. Because I've definitely seen mobs go off the rails where they lacked that. And it just, the mob was the vehicle to spread bad things is what it, what I've, I've seen that happen before too. So um, it's like, it was good at, it's like a machete, good for bad things and good things. And I've seen it spread bad things. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think I've, I've landed on that pinning over the years. Um, and uh, so you've mentioned now a few times, kind of these really cross-functional teams, you know, electrical, mechanical, firmware, software, safety critical, high reliability. Is this the world you were in before and then discovered mob or were you mobbing before and then brought it into this world? What's kind of the story there for you, Phil? Yeah. <laughs> I've spent my entire career in embedded systems. So working in a, a cross-functional yeah. team with people doing, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, all, okay. all kinds of different versions of electrical engineering. Some folks doing analog where they're reading data off tape and, and such. I've worked with people who are pneumaticists who are moving air through pipes for ventilating patients. Uh, we've worked with ultrasound experts, all kinds of different disciplines, all working together to bring uh, a device uh, mm. out. And, uh, yeah, they uh, quite a variety of different things. We we made like say tape recorders for military applications, big jukeboxes. I've made uh, robotic ultrasound systems. Uh, I made ventilators for quite a long time, uh, and uh, and again applying XP processes uh, and mob practices to to many of these uh, mm -hmm. going on, and have been have found it to be very successful in these in these kind of devices. Um, and, and for the same reason, it probably works in a pure software sort of, you know, web application sort of thing where you're going and you're getting fast feedback. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're letting, um, the interactions with your other teammates get brought up by the tests you write, right? If you write a test of a system, uh, you're not, a, and it controls hardware. Uh, when you do testing with that hardware, you're going to exercise the hardware and find the problems in it. And so uh, it's turned out to be a very healthy process for getting high reliability and, and safety critical products to market. So nice. uh, my, my journey to, to, you know, today and mobbing starts out with how do we make these kind of devices so that when you turn them on, they stay on for the next three years or how, how do we keep it yeah. without, uh, you know, hurting or killing somebody? It's, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking, up late at night worrying about it you know am i going to hurt somebody with this medical device and having xp having test driven development um honestly is a technique to help me sleep well at night when <laughs> when yeah. the device can honestly have pretty pretty dire repercussions mm. yeah yeah i had a follow-up question on this because i haven't been like the software i've worked on for the last 15 years has been important but it's never been like you like you were talking about like the safety critical like you know someone's heart is depending on this to work kind of thing <laughs> uh that moment or whatever um and like you said highly regulated and i i was uh having a dialogue online recently and they were saying that relying on tdd uh can be seen as complacent because the only way in a system like that to really know it works is you have to manually exercise it or whatever What's been your experience with your reliance on tests in a world where the manual test would matter a lot? <laughs> What's the interplay between those two for you? Yeah. Well, um, so it's interesting. Um, in in medical devices, what's required of you is a, is a whole very detailed process. And uh, they describe this whole process as what uh, what's called the quality V. And in that you have... Um, Going down one side, you have various layers of specification that go on. So where maybe you start with a marketing specification, and then you start with a whole product specification. And then you specify what is the software going to do? 
you specify an architecture, and then you do detailed design. And you go up the other side with tests of all these, right? So your detailed design gets unit tests done. Um, your architecture may have sort of testing of intermodule communication. Your software requirements may have whole uh, integration tests, right? You test the whole application as one layer. And that's often maybe the software requirements and you're getting into the product requirements too, where you're testing, does this software control the hardware? All mm. of that can be automated, right? All is very well suited to doing automation and it's very well suited to doing a test first approach. So you go and you write a test of the big thing. I'm going to, you know, uh, set this setting. And at the end, this motor that's pushing air out is going to run this fast, right? And you can put equipment mm -hmm. on it, this, you know, read the RPMs off of it or read the pressure coming out. Um, and so you write a test that says, I'm going to, you know, insert this command. And at the other side, I'm going to read this uh, pressure gauge and tell me that I'm getting the, the expected pressure when my software drives the motor to drive the turbine to push out the air. The only thing that's in there, and all that is, all that kind of testing is called verification, right? I have a specification and my test shows that this meets the same specification. There's another kind of testing called validation. Um, and these terms vary depending on your industry, but in a medical device world, validation says this device works how I would expect it to work if I were a professional in the field. So if you're building a ventilator, you have a respiratory therapist come and run a scenario. You've got this hooked up to a, a fake lung and the device, mm. and they go in and act like that was a real patient and do mm. their testing. And I, I don't know a way to automate, does it work like a person expects, right? <laughs> That's still got to be manual. Okay. Um, but everything else is very well suited to automation, mm. right? And, okay. and so... Um, no, I, I disagree with the idea that TDD would do that. If you thought about it as all I'm going to do is unit test the individual modules, functions, classes, yeah, that's not sufficient, right? The whole thing has to work together too. Okay. But this has always been the testing pyramid, right? You have the, mm. the testing by the validation when you've got it in the hands of the real person, that's a small amount of test, right? They, they're nowhere near the amount of tests that you put in the unit test. Right. Your whole team, every engineer on the team is writing, you know, a dozen or so unit tests a day. So you get a ton of those. Yeah. And how many hundred of those add up to a product level specification? And you probably have one or five or 12 tests of a product level specification, right? The one doesn't work the way we expect, checking across the range, checking the out of range conditions, you know, kind of zombie your way through, through that process. Yeah. But so you end up with a ton of the the unit tests and a smaller number of tests as you neck down. As you go up the V, you get this inverse, the, the testing pyramid uh, of volume of tests. Okay. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, and uh, I have one more follow-up que question. Sorry, Chris, I know we probably have to transition, but oh, <laughs> I'm just so right, interested. Uh, so at the top of the pyramid in this kind of safety critical world, how big of a problem is flakiness and overhead from, from those kind of tests? Um, or have you guys figured that out? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, the, the does it work like you expected test? Uh, there's a certain amount of perception in that. And so you have several, you know, mm. you probably don't have one person testing. You probably have a dozen okay. different people and you're sort of summing the results and you're trying to understand the outliers. Okay. And, um, you know, they're, they're, quality testing professionals who uh, sort of shepherd these groups, 
you know, set up the cases. We may set up software to make their setups easy, by the way. We may do things to, mm. to make their testing go faster. We may also automate collection of what happened, right? So sure. You can record, you know, what's every touch on the user interface? Uh, mm. What did they dial? What, what pressures actually came out? And you can record the whole session and, and use that to analyze what went wrong. Mm. Um, once you get into anything automated, um, you definitely have to get it to where it works the same time every time. Mm. And that's the more uh, sort of hardware you have in the loop, the more variables that you put in there, the harder that becomes. Yeah. Um, but you have to invest time into it and, and okay. make it make it work because otherwise you fight the um, false, false positives, right? I've got an error that says something's broken. And if it's not broken, then you start ignoring your test results. Right? Yeah. So you have to go <laughs> keep the flakiness out. Um, by the way, this is also this sort of environment uh, really does well with the idea of, of zero bugs. And a lot of the, you'd be stunned at most of the safety critical world doesn't go to a zero bug sort of philosophy. They go in and say, well, this is okay because we'll write something in the manual. Uh, but again, if you're doing this test-driven feedback and you're expecting you know, a continuous delivery mindset, I've got a product that would be safe to use every day of the week. Um, then you have to knock down those bugs because you can't ignore something and go, oh, well, we know about that. Because <laughs> you'll just, you'll you'll drown in that right? really, really, yeah. really quickly. Yeah, cool, cool. And, and it's, again, no different than other, you know, software world. It's just the yeah. implications of leaving those bugs and drowning yeah. it is, is possibly worth Nice. All right. Well, uh, we we wanted to get to this other topic of what do we do when mobbing is not an option. So we have a few minutes to talk about that. So yeah, let's go ahead and get in, dive into that. Yeah, well, I, I had an interesting change of career, and I'm uh, I have taken on a role as a sole contributor uh, for a company. Uh, we're making uh, green energy products, and I am the only embedded systems engineer. In, in the company, they have a handful of software engineers that are doing server-level products that talk, you know, over the over a LoRa network to the actual end devices that I'm writing the code for. But uh, you have a, a person who's been pairing or mobbing for the last twenty or more than twenty years, and I'm now uh, an individual out on an island, and uh, it's been a very interesting experience, uh, uh, sort of trying to build new habits of how to how to work that and how to apply what um, what I know from working in small groups into working as a a, a mob of one so it's, it's been a, so um, it's been different <laughs> yeah yeah so how has it been different what what, uh, what are the what I, I think I'm more most interested in like what from mobbing uh, have you pulled into that environment and what makes you excited about it? Um, it it's, it's been a very interesting, you know, plus or minus. Part of it has been dealing with, uh, frankly, a little bit of loneliness, right? I've, I've gone from being at a, you know, constant conversation uh, at a very sort of noisy, high chatter sort of environment into a very quiet uh, and, you know, just alone with your own thoughts kind of thing. And that's been interesting to deal with. Uh, I, part of it is... Uh, Mobbing gives you a real uh, momentum, right? Anytime you're sort of, I'm running out of an idea, uh, you have somebody else to say, hey, but what if we did this? What if we did this? 
somebody else to spot the holes in your in your test cases. Somebody to hold you accountable when you're well. I guess I can. We can we can do that later. Right? We can clean that up later. Uh, you don't have somebody holding you accountable for that. And so uh, I've tried various things on that. And and one of them is uh, can I act like that other person? And this is a you know do you go and work for a little while, stop, and then go back and, and step away from the code for a little bit, have a cup of coffee, whatever, come back and say, okay, now I'm going to look at it as if, as though I were another person in the mob who's going to come and yeah. give me feedback. I like it. I like it. Like um, if you're playing the mob programming RPG by yourself with a, pulling up a random card, right? So <laughs> spend 20 minutes as the navigator and then spend another 20 minutes as the uh, nose uh Go away, come back, maybe look at it as the traffic cop or the automationist and and uh, be a different role each time. I, I, I like that idea. It's like um it's like a solitaire version of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um I I take notes a lot for uh what you would think of as retrospectives and the like. Um honestly a lot of my teams did retros where we wrote things down and had a huge backlog of everything we'd written. Anyway, so I, that habit helps out quite a bit as well as a, you know, how do you hold yourself accountable? Uh, and so some of those keeping notes, if I got to clean up this, I have to clean up this, this needs to be better. Those sorts of things and going back and reflecting, have I done that? Am I really making those things better? And going and then, you know, putting your, you know, putting your big pants on and going, okay, I have to face up and do these <laughs> things that for whatever reason I pushed off. Um, yeah. um it, it reminds me so like i you know i will do uh i'll work on uh video games in my free time and uh you know if i if i record my development i'm much more likely to test uh, write tests more and better tests and, and also be more conscious about my code so so often everything uh tends to come out nicer uh when it's recorded and so that, but yeah it, that's involving another person to bring to, to into your process right or another you know a viewer or something um but sometimes you don't have that in, internally so I, I like this idea of, of uh shifting persona right nice nice oh, that's cool and i i like uh <clears throat> this is a pretty interesting idea that I, i've you know I, I always joke that uh um, when the mob leaves me alone, like if someone has to go to this meeting and then someone else has to take care of this or that, and I'm alone for an hour, I'll be like, oh, the mob continued. I just debated against myself the whole time. And, uh, I'm more confused, you know, <laughs> when there, when it's just me, cause there's no one else to sort out the debates in my head. Um, but yeah, I really like this idea and you're right, Chris, it's almost like making it public in some way does help with that. It's almost like uh, I've heard it heard in other contexts called as like living in a glass house. Yeah. Um, so if you set up yourself to be transparent, it's almost like there's another person there or could be there at any moment. And so I've had the same effect maybe uh, from if I'm coding alone to start a meeting by myself in a public area, <laughs> like remotely, or I guess the in-person version would be like, in a public space, start coding. So someone could interject or could see what I was doing and take on one of these other roles. And I guess maybe your mind or brain tricks yourself to be better because you're like, well, someone might ask me what I'm doing. And then I would have to confess if I was like, 
no, I've just written like, you know, 5,000 lines with no tests and it's going to be a terrible mess and it's going to take me two months to unwind it, you know, <laughs> or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I like this, like this thought a lot. And uh, I think, I don't know, maybe um, I, I wonder if you've had this feeling that sometimes I feel like I want to go code alone and I'll go do it for a while enough until I'm like, okay, I'm ready for the mob again. <laughs> It sounds like you maybe already hit that hit that part. I, I, I'm actually I'm actually in the mode where I'm at the opposite point, where now my learning time I don't go write codes on my own. I seek out groups that are doing ah, uh, nice, doing sort of learning experiences. So I'm I'm yeah. spending a lot more uh, time seeking out groups that are doing talks online, uh, groups that are doing katas on on groups. I'm some mm. of the folks that are um, the sort of server programmers. Occasionally, I'll get them suckered in to come write katas with me and. Um, We'll go to that. So they're all um, yeah. all the embedded systems written in Rust. So there's some interest in learning Rust on the team. So we'll we'll come together and, and nice. I, I can tempt them to come write Rust with me for a little while. And just getting that social time of having a different mind is really yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I do see some some situations where somebody with different skill sets, you know comes in and mobs a firmware engineer mobbing with the cloud team or the cloud engineers mobbing with the firmware team. Um, and that can have a, a really positive impact and, and possibly even do full stack, you know, I'm going to write the API on the firmware device to then communicate to the API in the cloud, communicate to the UI, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, and sometimes you might be able to then deliver something like that uh, a lot faster in that way. And single piece oh, nice. whips sort of stuff, yeah. slow, slow efficiency. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our time box here. We have a couple minutes left. Um, and I guess what I'm sensing from this is that there's a healthy amount of social and non-social time and you have to find it one way or another, maybe. And um, and uh, but before we run out of time, Phil, is there anything you'd like to share a plug before we close? Uh, I think I might mention my, my current employer is, a, a as I say, a green energy company called Kelvin. Uh, we make, um, we make insulated boxes for radiators in old legacy steam heated buildings. And this lets people control how much heat comes into their room and keeps them from opening the window to keep the room too cool when the radiators are too hot, which is <laughs> something as a Southern Californian, I wasn't aware of, but, uh, yeah, um, currently you have to set the <laughs> you have to set the boiler to the to keep the coldest room in a building to a certain temperature which means two-thirds of the people in the building are sweating and so it's the middle of winter snow is coming down and half the building's got its windows open mm -hmm. and so we make these uh intelligent um boxes that wrap around the radiator uh a fan and a little computer and it talks radio off to the uh to the cloud and then we use that to figure out how hard you have to drive the boiler. I mean, cut the boiler heating costs by 25, 33%, cut down all the emissions and make everybody's life a little bit better for more comfort. And so if you live in a, a legacy steam heated building, it might be a great thing to bring up with your co-op and uh, see if they want to bring one of our cozies in. If you're interested in writing uh, <laughs> either uh, some embedded software or some uh, uh, you know, server software, uh, this might be a good place for you to land. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for I, sharing I, that and being in Southern I, California I as well. I needed the explanation. <laughs> so, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> you made no sense. I, I do want to just give one nod out. Uh, one of the things on our first topic that we brought up, but where do you learn something? Where do you go from? I have just finished my second read through of 
Dave Farley's Modern Software Engineering book. And if I were to hand to a new engineer, how would you, how should you work? How should you go about it? That would be my best first book for somebody to, to read. Uh, or if you want to look at how do I transfer your career, um, I think that does it the right way. Uh, thinks a lot about the feedback loops, thinks about the people side. About, so it's the, I, I would say the current state of the art if I were, if I were to go one place. So I'm really delighted to have, have found it and uh, have something to give to the young engineers to, to look at these days. Fantastic. Thank you for that uh, recommendation. And uh, thank you so much for Phil for joining us and sharing your excellent experiences and insights and thoughts. It's been a really fun conversation to our audience. If you know other people who are interested in naming this awesome thing, this movement we're part of, and how do we talk about it? Uh, what do we name it? All that kind of stuff. Please share this episode. If you know others who are in safety critical, high reliability, regulated, how to apply XP and these things to, to get out that goodness. Uh, and also what it's like to mob, uh, to mob solo, <laughs> to go solo after mobbing. And uh, uh, please share this episode with somebody. Please like, subscribe. Uh, you can uh, reach out to us to chit chat on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, YouTube, and more. And mob on and have a good one, everybody. Bye. Bye, everyone.